Sister. I'm Ignacio. Can't be with you, Ignacio. Anyways, I was wondering if you would like to join me in my quarters this night for some toast. Cuero. Look alive. There is a man sick with influenza. I need for you to pay him a visit. But the sister and you I... You are always complaining of never having priestly duties. Here is your big duty. Huh? Go now. So that sister and I may talk of holy things. There you have it. Your priestly duties. So get to it. Um, yes. All right. So how many of you have never seen that movie? Okay. Oh, wow. All right. Well, another takeaway for the weekend. Uh, maybe take a second to watch Nacho Libre. It's worth it. Well, we are uh, coming to our final session of the weekend and therefore coming to the final office of uh, Jesus, which is that of the king. Um, we saw already uh, first session was looking at Jesus Christ as the prophet, uh, that he um, both is himself and reveals to us the truth uh, and answers to our desire to know the truth. And this morning we thought about how Jesus is our priest, that he stood in our place, he removed our guilt, he's purified our conscience. And so when you want to ask, am I enough, you can say, yes, I am in Jesus. Uh, and that he has given you his full righteousness and there's nothing that can be added to it. But tonight we're going to look at uh, Christ the King. And here we're looking at, uh, I think, what is the fundamental desire that all of us have for security, uh, for freedom, and for uh, a sense that we are uh, under the rule of someone who will provide for our flourishing. And this is what Jesus as king does. He governs us, he protects us, he leads us according to the will of God for our good and for his glory. Um, and that's what we're going to, to look at this evening. And so let's read for the final time our single sentence from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once more for your word, Lord God. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your word is truth, and we ask that you would uh, make us clean by your truth, Lord. Incline our hearts uh, towards it. Uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things. Open our eyes to see Jesus, our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, that's our third time reading this sentence, and I think by now it should be abundantly clear uh, that the author of Hebrews has a very high view of Jesus Christ. Um, he says a lot in this one sentence, but he's essentially saying one thing, and that, that is that Jesus is everything, that Jesus Christ is, is supreme. And he opens, as we saw, in kind of verse 1 and through that, that first half of verse 2 by pointing us to Jesus' supremacy as the Son that he is God's final word to us. 
But the rest of that sentence, the second half of verse 2 all the way through verse 4, he gives these seven statements, all of which are about the preeminence of Jesus, and all of them parallel uh, the seven Old Testament quotations that he's going to offer in verses 5 through 14. But the question is, like, why seven? Why seven statements? Why seven quotations? Because seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of completion. And so what that shows us is that everything about this sentence, from its grammatic, from its structure down to its content, is all designed to show us the perfect supremacy of Jesus. That's what the author wants us to see. And we've already looked at half of one of these statements when we, when we talked about Jesus Christ as our priest, but what about the other six? What do they teach us about the person and work of Christ? Well, if you look at all of them, all of them are actually focused on the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so while we've talked about Jesus as prophet, which is the emphasis in verses 1 and the first half of 2, and we've talked about him as priest, uh, the, one of the main themes really is the exaltation of the Son of God, that he is uh, the king. Now, at this point, you might think, well, that's great. You know, I'm glad we did some close reading of Hebrews 1. I'm glad that you've done a bit of theologizing, but what does it matter? Like, why, why should I care that Jesus Christ is, is exalted in heaven? What does that have to do with my life here on earth in this gritty uh, reality of the day-to-day? Well, we have two points that I hope will answer that question and show us how the kingship of Jesus is not only something that we have to submit to, but it's something that we actually should desire. It's actually something that we should want and long for. And so two points. First of all, our desire to be ruled and secondly, the ruler we desire, our desire to be ruled and the ruler we desire. Now, our desire to be ruled, you might raise a skeptical eyebrow at that kind of point, like which one of us wants to actually be ruled by someone else? Um, and if you think about our society and the way that it is set up, it would seem that everything is kind of geared not towards being ruled by someone else, but that everything is geared towards ensuring that individuals have the freedom to live as they see fit. Right? It seems like for a lot of people, the only rule is self-rule. Um, and so the, the kind of sacred value is choice, and on the throne is the sovereign self. And I think that that's an accurate assessment of how a lot of people think about um, rule, as it were. And there's, a, there's a skepticism towards institutions, and then paired with that is this uh, enthronement of the sovereign self. But I would, dis- I would suggest that despite that, despite kind of negative attitudes towards external authority, we actually really want to be ruled. And now when I say ruled, uh, what I don't mean is enslaved, right? None of us wants to be enslaved. None of us wants to be controlled. None of us wants to be abused. None of us wants to be dehumanized. Um, We resist and we reject tyranny. But unless you're an anarchist, and if you are, I'd love to talk to you uh, afterwards, because that's interesting. Uh, I do think all of us desire some form of rule. We desire some form of leader. We want to know that there is some person or some group of people who possess the power, the wisdom, and the goodwill to provide us with security, uh, to provide us with stability, to provide us with prosperity. We want that. It's why we have presidents, prime ministers, you know, parliaments. It's why we have these systems 
in place because for all of our individualism and our commitment to the self, we know that in order to actually experiencing, experience the blessings of an ordered society, you need to have somebody in charge. You need some ruler. You need some, some leader. And so you can talk about checks and balances. Uh, you can talk about uh, mistrust and skepticism, but none of that really eliminates our desire to be ruled. What we don't want is to be dominated, right? Um, so how is, this, how is this so? Well, I think one way you can kind of see this playing out um, in society is if you look at the way in which so many people have, have had an increasing zeal and devotion for politics. Um, if you were to Google politics as religion, you'd find all of these articles about people writing about how politics has become a religious, there's a religious fervor surrounding a pol politics in a lot of um, people's lives. And so just take, for example, the 2016 presidential election, right? I remember uh, leading up to that election, you would hear people talk about that um, presidential campaign in very stark terms. They would talk about it as if it was like a matter of life and death, that this was like this deadlock between good and bad, light and dark, you know, the dark side and the good side. Um, I remember hearing people, you know, kind of on, from the left, people would say like, well, if, if Trump gets elected, it's over. Democracy has come to an end. You know, anarchy has returned. We're back to a fascist state. And then you'd have people on the right who would say the same kind of thing. Like, to elect Hillary is to go into a Marxist meltdown. You know, it's, it's to, to end America as we know it. And the point that I'm trying to make is not whether someone was right or wrong. The point I'm just trying to make is that, that the presidential election had taken on this kind of new and, and somewhat startling significance. There was, there was all of this, this urgency and angst over who was in the Oval Office. It wasn't just like, well, this is a better choice, that's a worse choice. No, it was like, this is the embodiment of evil or the embodiment of good. And there was this, this uh, sense that it, it, it mattered so much that we be ruled by the right person. And I don't think it was just 2016 or 2020, that those were just blips on the radar, but that is kind of the political world in which we live, we live now. And so I think what this points to is that there is this abiding desire to be ruled. But not just to be ruled, but to have, like, th to have the right person ruling over us. And so what all of us, uh, I think, really want is we want someone who is perfectly capable of desiring our own good while also desiring their own good. Right? What why, why does abuse happen? Abuse happens when somebody desires their own good at your expense. That's why we don't give ourselves to people often, because we're afraid that they're going to use us. But what we want is someone who can, who can fully desire their own good while simultaneously desiring our good. We want someone who, who controls all things, but doesn't control us. right? Someone who has authority, but who is not authoritarian. We want to know that somebody has a plan, but we really hope that that plan involves our blessing and our flourishing. We want someone to rule us well. And the author of Hebrews hears that desire, and he says, look no further than Jesus. He is the ruler that you desire. And so that's really our second point, which has a uh, little, yeah, well, that is our, our second point. Jesus is uh, 
the ruler we desire, but why, right? Why is he the ruler we desire? Well, he is for three reasons. Because he's created all things, because he controls all things, and because he has inherited all things through his life, death, and resurrection. That's what the author points out to us, that Jesus created all things, he controls all things, and he inherited all things. And I just want to spend the rest of the time briefly unpacking those three statements, this idea that, that Jesus created all things, controls all things, and inherited all things. In the first place, Jesus is the one who has created all things. He's the one through whom the whole created universe of space and time came into being. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now I said that Jesus is the ruler we desire. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about why Jesus is the ruler we desire. But before we go there, we have to realize that whether you desire him or not, he is the ruler. Um, so right now, you know, we have a president in the office. You may like him. You may not like him. But he's the president. And he's not going anywhere for another year, at least. And so the same thing holds, except on a grander scale, that Jesus Christ is the king whether we like it or not. And, and you see that by virtue of the fact that he is the creator because there is no stronger claim for lordship than the fact that everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus, right? If you, if you are the one who makes something and you are the one for whom something was made, then you are its rightful lord. Right, Burger King gets this, right? At BK. That's right. You are the king at Burger King, right? Why? Because you walk into Burger King, right? And you can say, you know, uh, I, I watched the 1974 commercial of this earlier today. It was so cringy. But the guy's like, wait, can I have no onions and pickles? And the lady sings. She's like, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it to you your way. I'm like, dang, you know? But that's the idea. You get that, right? That's why you're the king at BK, because you could say, I want a Whopper, and I want chicken fries. And you know what? Hold the pickles. Hold the lettuce. And you're creating, you're crafting this meal, and it's for you, and you're like, I'm lord over this place, right? <laughs> BK, I am the king here. <laughs> now, of course, that's very insignificant. Um, but it makes the point that, that your identity as the creator entails your identity as the owner. Right? That if you make something, you own it. Authorship entails ownership. And, and so that's why we have copyright laws. That's why we have trademarks. That's why we have um, these different ways of showing that we are the rightful owners of things. Now, you and I might make a piece of art. You might write a book. You might even you know, pick out a select menu at, at BK. But none of us have created the universe. Right? But Jesus Christ has. So he actually has a copyright on the cosmos. He says, that's mine. I'm king. And this is what led the theologian Abraham Kuyper to write, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so what this means is that you are not your own. 
that you actually belong to Christ. Whether you belong to him by virtue of common grace, you're someone he's created, or you belong to him by his redeeming grace, you're a part of his new creation, the point is that you still belong to him. And this is a truth that comes to us right from the first page of scripture when we read that God made man and woman, male and female, in his image. There's this point where in the Gospels where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are always trying to, ha- you know, uh, heckle him or ha- what's that? Is that heckle? Is that the right word? No. Haggle? Haggle? I don't know. Bother. Heckle, right? Isn't that the right word? Okay, thank you. Uh, so the Pharisees are bothering him, right? They're, they're always trying to catch him. Um, and so they, they come up to him and they ask him this question, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're like, oh, we got this guy. Jesus is like, all right, y'all, come on, somebody give me a coin. Someone throws him a denarius, right? And he says, tell me, whose image is on this coin? And they're all like, Caesar. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then the gospels say that everyone marveled. But you know what? They should have asked another question. They should have asked, well, whose image is on us? Right? You see, if, if this coin has an image of Caesar and it belongs to Caesar, therefore, then what does it mean if God's image is on you? It means that you belong to him. It means your whole self, you belong to him. Caesar can claim some coins. Jesus claims creation. And most of all, he claims you, the one who has been stamped with his image. You know, theologians will often talk about how the doctrine of the image of God is what grounds our belief in human dignity. It's the thing that gave us human rights. And that's very true. But there's another aspect to this doctrine of the image of God. You see, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, which is the context for when Genesis was written, what would happen is great kings would set up images of themselves throughout their kingdoms. And the reason why these kings would set up these images of themselves throughout their kingdoms is because they wanted to remind everyone who was in charge and to whom they owed ultimate authority or respect and dignity to. And so what this means is that your identity as a man or woman made in the image of God is, first of all, gives you great dignity, it gives you great worth, but it also reminds you of who made you and to whom you owe everything. And you can't get that stamp off, right? And so Jesus is the creator, and you, and you bear his, his image. And so you have two options. You can crown him or you can crucify him. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, one crowd says, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's the Messiah. A week later, another crowd says, crucify him, crucify him. The question is, which crowd are you going to find yourself in? Are you going to be in the crowd that welcomes him, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest, here is the Messiah, the King, or are you going to find yourself in the crowd that says, crucify him, crucify him? Because those are the only two options that he gives us. You can, you can either submit to his kingship or you can try to usurp his throne. But that's the point that you can't escape his kingship. But I said that his, thing is, his kingship is something that we actually desire. And so we need to talk about that. Why is the rule of Jesus a thing that we actually want? Well, it's because in the second place, he's not only the creator of all things, but he controls all things. 
that he is the sovereign sustainer of everyone and everything. The way the author of the Hebrews puts it, he says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The idea there is that uh, Jesus is continually arranging and carrying forward the created world toward a designed end. In other words, when we say that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power, it means that he has a plan. That he has a plan and he is accomplishing it. And he has a plan that cannot be thwarted by anyone, whether on earth or in heaven. He speaks into the universe, he commands, and it's done. But the question is, what is his plan, right? Because knowing that Jesus is the creator of all things, that he has a plan, and that no one can thwart his plan, is not immediately comforting, right? Vladimir Putin, he has a plan. No one's happy about it, right? Kim Jong-un, he has plans. Uh, no one is happy about it, right? So what's the plan of Jesus? Why should I think that his plan is, is the plan, the one that I want to follow? Well, the plan of Jesus is the plan of our triune God, and here's how it's stated most clearly and most beautiful in Revelation 21. Here, this is Jesus' plan. Listen to Jesus' plan. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. Do you not long for that? Right? Don't, don't, don't all of us want the removal of every tear? Do we not want the silencing of all mourning, the end of all suffering? We want pain to be eradicated and peace to be established. And when you look at your life and you look at the world around you, I think it's obvious that something is wrong. Something is out of whack. And we want someone who's actually able to make all things new. And Jesus says, this is what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. I'm about making all things new. I'm about removing tears, overcoming pain, conquering death, the final enemy. That's his plan. But you know what the problem is? The problem is we want the kingdom without the king. See, for all of us, growing up with all of those desires for the removal of pain and, and the end of all these things, all of us want righteousness and justice, right? We want uh, things in the world to be at peace. We want to see the end of hunger and, and homelessness and, and abuse and, and racism. We long for the day when there will be no more war, no more violence, no more hatred, where everyone's valued, where no one is marginalized. But we also want the right to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We also want to be in control of our own world. We also want to rule over our little kingdoms and judge for ourselves. We want the kingdom without the king. But you can't have it. You can't have it because Jesus Christ is the only king from whom pure justice and mercy flow. He himself is righteousness and love. He is the king of compassion and of empathy. You know, one of the saddest things about us as humans is that we are not even capable of desiring our own good. Think about this. I think a lot of times we, we keep ourselves from other people because we say, I can't trust my life to other people. They're going to harm me. And so we think, I know, I will just trust myself. 
I will be the one who will pursue my own good, and I possess the power to do it. But the problem with humans is that we are, amongst all the creatures under heaven, uniquely capable of self-destruction. You know, I have friends who would tell me that they're embracing a life of liberty, who they're, they're uh, living a life of self-expression. But as I look at their life, they're treating themselves as objects of dehumanization. Right? Uh, they're saying, this is, this is liberty. And yet you look at your, their life, you're like, that's freedom? Yikes. I look at my life, and, and I, I don't even... I'm not even capable oftentimes of knowing what's best for me, right? We're all like children in the grand scheme of things. My two-and-a-half-year-old does not know what's best for him. And in the grand scheme of life and eternity, you and I are all like Carson, you know? We don't, that's my son, we don't know what's best for us. Oftentimes we, desi- we, we are self-destructing. But the good news is that Jesus is capable of desiring your good and his good at the same time. And which brings us to our final aspect of Jesus' kingship and the reason that he is the ruler we desire, and that's his identity as the heir of all things. Notice that the author of Hebrews, he, he leads off his seven statements by saying, he has spoken to us by his son, first statement, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then he closes his seven statement, seven statements by mentioning that he has become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, which is the name is it, it references power and honor. But what are we to make of this because we just said that Jesus created all things and that he controls all things. So what is there left to inherit? Like what what is he becoming an heir of? If he already owns everything, how can he be said to be an heir? Well, the answer is found first and foremost in the incarnation. Right? What is the incarnation but the eternal Son of God becoming the messianic Son of God? Right? The second person of the Trinity takes to himself a human nature and he dwells in our midst and he lives and he dies and he is raised and he's exalted to the right hand of majesty and he becomes the heir of all things, thus inheriting everything as the messianic son. Now you say, but why bother? Right? Why, why do that? You're already the eternal son of God who made everything. What do you stand to gain by becoming the messianic son, right? If you're Jesus, why would you leave heaven? That's the question. And the answer is you. The reason why the eternal son of God became the messianic son of God, is because he wanted to have you. Think about this with me for a second. We said before that Jesus' plan, according to Revelation 21, is that he is going to dwell with us and he is going to make us his people. Right? In other words, Jesus is going to say, you will be my inheritance and I will be your inheritance. But here's the problem. How can a righteous, holy God dwell in the midst of rebels who don't really want him around, right? How can the father say to the son, here, Jesus, here's your inheritance. They all hate you, (laughs) right? Why would the son want to inherit a kingdom of rebels? And so what does the son do? He becomes one of us. He lowers himself, and he redeems those rebels. 
He redeems those rebels, and that's what King Jesus has done. He's the eternal Son of God has become the messianic Son of God so that he could redeem for himself a people for his own possession, as Titus describes it. And that's what the author is getting at when he says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus came because he wanted to purify his people and raise them up with him so that we might always be with him and that he might always be with us. And that's why Jesus is the king who was not born in a palace. He did not mount a throne, but he mounted a cross. He wore not... Uh, He wore a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. He did all of this so that he could have an inheritance, so that he could have you. That is the great lengths to which the Lord Jesus Christ went. And so Jesus is the ruler that we desire because he's the only ruler who seeks our eternal good and our glory. Jesus is seeking your glory as he seeks his own glory that together we might be glorified with him. And he died so that he might gain you a redeemed and purified you. And in turn, you gain him. And you gain everything that is his. And that's why elsewhere, uh, the Bible will speak of you and I as co-heirs with Christ. The idea that everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to you. His glory, his riches, all things are yours in Christ. His perfect record of obedience, it's yours. His love, his joy, his peace, it's yours. His wisdom, it's yours. The new heaven and the new earth, it's yours. As Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours and you are Christ's. Now, what I'm preaching is not a prosperity gospel. This doesn't mean that everything in life is going to go pleasantly for you. But what it does mean is that everything that happens to you in your life is for your benefit. Right? All things are yours and you are Christ means that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That the best things cannot be taken away from you and the day is coming when the worst things will be no more. You are a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... This is your king. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne, right? He created all things. He controls all things. And if you are part of his people, then you are going to inherit all things in him. Praise be to God. So as we close uh, this weekend, I hope that you've seen the beauty of Jesus as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. The one who leads us into all truth, who purifies us from guilt, who governs and guides us into all blessedness and so let's go to him let's go to his word that we might receive light let's go to his cross that we might receive cleansing go to his throne that you might receive refuge Uh, he's able to save amen father we thank you that uh, you have given us all things in the lord jesus christ that with him we will reign we pray O god that you would uh, raise up our eyes to heaven lord help us to uh set our mind on heavenly things where we are seated with Christ presently. And Lord, we long for the day when you will come and we will see you and you will make all things new and we will enter into the fullness of our inheritance. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that you come quickly and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.